the Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will earn you our fairy eternal gratitude. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Fairy. Uh, and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group, yes. which is the best. The best. All the fun. It's true. It is true. All of the people who know exactly what we want to see, and it's beautiful. It is. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid. Marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 15. Make all the bones about it. Yes, we'll, we'll have all of them, please. Yeah. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. I'm Natalie from Uber Dork Designs, an official true crime creative. Fancy. Fun. Yes. So, hey, hi, how you doing? I'm really mad about Luminol. Oh boy, what did Luminol do now? I'm just mad about how it's used in every fucking podcast and every fucking TV show. <laughs> Tis all because the places. I, I was discussing this with my dad, um, because my dad is a former uh, crime lab director, and I thought that I had the science of Luminol sorted out and that it was detecting corrosives mm -hmm. and that after that you need to test to see if human DNA is present to know that it's blood. So when things light up like a Christmas tree, they may well be a crime scene, but they could also just be fucking bleached. Uh. Anyway, I... That wasn't at all what I was going to talk about, um, <laughs> but it, it seems to be the thing that I have talked about. But speaking of blood, I have given my official first blood offering to my new in-progress books. Oh, that took yeah. a bit. Yep. Well, it's a dull needle since yeah, it's cross-stitch. But I finally managed to work through the top layers of the finger that I use to, like, feel the needle coming through mm -hmm. on the other side. And I had, I, I just refuse to properly use a thimble. I don't, Makes sense. my body just won't. It, I, so every time I put a thimble on, 
my body is just like, all right, skipping that finger, moving on to the next. <laughs> and so I, I have finally, because I did not want to get blood on my project, I finally think I have made peace with thimbles. Okay. So we shall see. Yay. But my, uh, there has been bloodshed. Huzzah. So I think that christens the book. Makes sense. I would think so. Yep. You know, champagne on ships, blood on cross-stitch patterns. That tracks. Anyway, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I got to have brunch with friend and Patreon member Terry and his absolutely lovely wife Amanda on Saturday, which was super fun. And Yay! Um, it's the first time that I got to meet Amanda, who is a librarian. I was like, we love us a librarian. Oh, we do love us a librarian. Do. So it was very, <laughs> it was very good to hang out face to face and eat yummy foods. And yeah, I, I used to have a T-shirt that said she blinded me with library science. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, that's a good one. So yeah, that was my. Uh, a big excitement and then we oh that's so fun i'm so glad you got so to hang out and then sunday we went on a random outing and ended up in a town not far from here called Boscobel. um and while trying to find some place fun to procure meal because you know mm-hmm. there's not a lot of eating options around here so if we get someplace new it's always fun to try something we stumbled upon this giant fucking turkey statue uh, that's like, hey, welcome to Basketball, <laughs> turkey hunting capital of the world, which makes sense with a giant turkey statue. The other part of the sign, apparently, it is the <laughs> home of the invention. I don't know you can say invention, the creation. I don't know. The Gideon Bible comes from there? Which, what? Right? I'm like, I thought that was like the Mormons, and I don't. I don't know how that tracks or what it the has Gideon to do with Bible, turkey. The Gideon Bible, isn't that the one that's in all of the hotel it rooms? It is. I don't... Yeah. I so. used to know a lot more about that than I can pull out of my head right now. Right. So, uh... Huh. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see a giant turkey. Uh, not it's a turkey true. vulture. Just a fucking turkey, because <laughs> if it was a turkey vulture that size, <laughs> Chad, no. No. Uh, and then, of course, it's right next to a giant cow statue because it's, um, it's by a, a, well, it's called a creamery, but they do ice cream and sandwiches and stuff. And But the turkey is bigger than the cow, and that just really messes with my sense of right and wrong. <laughs> just, That's some turkey. Yeah. So, uh, and, I mean, they are big. But they're not, like. They're way bigger than one would think, right, but they're, they're not bigger than that a cow. big. <laughs> right. Um, no. And for those that are waiting at the edge of their seats, uh, we didn't find, in fact, find some place to get food uh, and Chinese takeout was had. Um, in, oh, very important. In the most amazingly COVID lockdown place ever. The entire front is like when you walk in, they just do takeout and delivery. The mm-hmm. entire counter is plexiglassed from counter to ceiling. There is Fuck yes. There is a drawer you put your payment in and then there's a Oh, it's like taking a taxi. And then there's yeah, and then there's a there's a, a like big drawer on the other side where your food comes out. 
So it... Yeah. That is exactly how both New York City taxis, like the old school mm-hmm. ones, and also my local post office is. Uh-huh. My local post office has like a two-doored chamber where they open it on one side, put a package in, bring it down, lock the door, and then you unlock yours on the other side. And that is how you pass things back and forth. That's fun. I've been in a New York taxi, so that one I knew. But yeah, I was really impressed because it's a tiny little yeah. town. and Well, I mean, it's not. It's tiny. It's like 3,000 yeah. people. Um, I mean, our post office is its own circle of hell. <laughs> so I'm not valid, valid. suggesting that anyone goes to there just to see that because it's awful. <laughs> truly, truly awful. But, you know, so, yeah. in case you ever need to know how to use your post office airlocks. <laughs> I mean, it's the same general idea, although these aren't airtight as far as I know. There's only one way to find out. I'm just kidding. It's a federal building. Don't. (laughs) Don't test anything. Put a pigeon in there. (laughs) I mean, there have been pigeons and birds in the post office when I have gone in because, you know, they just wander in. And they're from New York as well. They're bold as hell. They're busy. Yep. They are busy. We had a, we had got to stop for a baby fox. There's a baby <gasps> fox. Yeah, baby I was fox. like, I want to pet your face. Um, it wants to eat yours. Yeah, that's fine. That's how I'm gonna die someday anyway. Petting something I shouldn't. Um, yeah, that's Mr. My Big wildlife. Stuff just meowed in the background. Speaking of <laughs> petting things that you shouldn't. That's my uh, my wildlife update and uh, my social life. Yeah. All right. I am deeply jealous about London because it has urban foxes. They just hang out. Like a friend of mine has foxes that come visit her back garden. Oh. In London. That would be uh, Apparently, uh, oh hell, what's it called? The TV show with the hot priest. Oh, oh, uh, oh my goodness, why can I not think of it? Yeah, I, I watched it, when is it, Phoebe Walter Bridges? Yeah. Is that Hot Priest? <laughs> I am just Googling Hot Priest. Fleabag, Thank you. there we go. I don't, it I really wanted... was the yes. first thing that came up for Hot Priest, <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, yeah, so apparently Fleabag is not so far-fetched. There are indeed foxes. There is a video on the internet somewhere, uh, where somebody had, you know, most, a lot of people just leave their dog's toys on the lawn. A fox happened upon it. Uh, Yeah, it's full on playing with the toy. And then there's the dog. And I want to say it's like a golden lab. Is sitting in the window watching this fox play with its toy, and I'm like, oh, just it's both that, cute, and I'm like, oh, that poor dog's probably like, that's mine. I want to play with you too. Um, especially if it is, if it's a lab or a retriever mm-hmm. of of the golden variety, 
it wants to play with the fox. Yeah. It wants to be friends. It does not understand why the fox wouldn't want to be friends. Yeah. Yep, yep. That's... Oh. Maybe I was a golden retriever in a past life because I want to be friends with all of the animals I shouldn't be. <laughs> I, too, want to be friends with all of the animals. I tried to make friends with some crows at my in-laws uh, a couple weekends ago. I did not stay a lo- around long enough to exchange gifts. Alas. Uh, speaking of exchanging yeah. gifts. Yeah. We should take a quick break to thank the gift that is our fantastic Curiosity Shop members. Yes, we should. Over on Patreon and give a totally normal, not at all creepy, welcome to Perry. Hi, Perry. Hello. Welcome to the fray. It's true. We promise we'll be gentle. Ish. <laughs> we'll shield you from Mr. Big Stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh, he just yelled. <laughs> that was excellent <sighs> timing, indeed. Oh boy. But we he have all kinds of stuff. Timing. All kinds yeah. of stuff uh, coming up. And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, Perry and every other Patreon member that we have, you. <clears throat> Mr. Big Stuff is helping emphasize this. <laughs> you, 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 you are the best. The best. And we would totally... <sighs> Mr. Big Stuff. <clears throat> and we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you, even when Mr. Big Stuff is hangry. Yes, absolutely. And... If you want in on this fun, you'll get like a huge backlog of Patreon only episodes, uh, including next week where we talk, what the hell is this? And you want to know, you want to know what it is because what the hell? Sometimes it has (laughs) brains and it can think. Yes. And sometimes, sometimes it's covered in varnish. Yeah. (laughs) But it's it super can go fun. either way. And we've got all kinds of things planned in the future that we're working on, especially once books things dies down. So yeah, give it a join. Check it out. If you don't like us, that's fine. We still like you. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you a story. Yay! Story time. It's true. And it is about catacomb saint. That sounds like a good story. Yes. So I'm going to start off with a quote from the Smithsonian when they were interviewing the main source that I used for my research, which was Paul Kunanderis. And... This is a quote from an interview with him that I thought just really summed up this whole thing. Paul Kudenderis is not a man who shies away from the macabre. Though the Los Angeles-based art historian, author, and photographer claims that his fascination with death is no greater than anyone else's, 
He devotes his career to investigating and documenting phenomena such as church ossuaries, charnel houses, and bone-adorned shrines, which is why, when a man in a German village approached him during a 2008 research trip and asked something along the lines of, are you interested in seeing a dilapidated old church in the forest with a skeleton standing there covered in jewels and holding a cup of blood in his left hand? Uh, like he's offering a toast. Um, Kudendaris's answer was yes, of course. Hell yeah. Yeah. That would have been my answer as right? well. Right? Like, Although it turns here? out I have, I think, seen one of these in person. Oh. In Munich. I think. Because I can't imagine I wouldn't have seen it. Makes sense. But also things were in film back in the days that I spent a decent amount of time in Germany. And that would require a lot more digging through childhood dressers than I am prepared to commit to at the moment. That So, Catacomb Saints. You may be wondering... And I, too, was wondering, who are the Catacomb Saints? Yes. Because they're not saints. Like, they aren't sanctified, incorrupt. Like, they do not meet the requirements of usual Catholic saints. But that seems to have been fine. Okay. In 1578 in Rome, a maze of underground burial chambers was unearthed, and they were, the bodies within, were assumed to be mostly early Christian martyrs, given the time period that it would have existed when Christians were persecuted. I always have to take a moment and be like, listen, Rome, make up your mind. <laughs> but nobody asked my advice. They never do. They should. And so to explain how these bones became known as catacomb saints, we're going to have to go down a very minute, minute? Very mini rabbit hole on the Protestant Reformation. Okay. Which is kind of dramatic, also kind of boring, but also is the reason why these catacomb saints exist at all. Because of the Protestant Reformation, which was, and this is a very light skimming over a topic that is extremely complicated, so... Just know that I'm aware that it's way more complicated than this. But uh, because the Protestant Reformation, which was a 16th century movement in which, among other things, um, there was a sought-after stifling of the political power of the Roman Catholic Church by reformers, that is the context in which these catacomb saints came about. 
So, like I said, the Reformation could fill an entire season of a podcast <laughs> or an entire whole podcast alone. So, here are just a few parts of it. I'm sure that you've probably heard a little tale about a guy named Martin Luther, yep. who in... 1517 posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg because he thought that buying indulgences, which is basically paying the Roman Catholic Church for forgiveness for your sins, like, let me give you this money so I can go stick my dick someplace. I don't know. Still I don't know. Having never been Catholic, I am largely just going on what I gleaned. Catholic. Yeah. So he thought that Martin Luther thought the whole indulgences thing was pretty sketch. And then there was also the whole Church of England business with Henry VIII because he was mad that the Pope wouldn't let him get divorced. Oh. That, that was a mess. Just a little bit. And then bit. Bibles were translated because they had historically been in Latin because priests read Latin and normal people didn't need to read Bibles, but now normal people could read Bibles. They were translated. Religious movements splintered and begat other religious movements. War was waged. And in this whole tornado of religious what-the-fuck... Catholic relics were largely destroyed in many areas of Northern Europe. And eventually, when France, Poland, and parts of Germany would largely revert back from Protestant to Roman Catholic, there was suddenly a need to restore the wholeness, like the visual wholeness of the Roman Catholic churches and the things that they had held dear as a community. Now, back to Cudenderis, uh, whose name I keep saying wrong, Cudenderis. My lisp just doesn't work well with his name. Maybe I really want to be friends with him very badly. Maybe I can just call him Paul, do we think? I think so. All right. I think Paul seems like a pretty cool guy. I, th I think so, too. So, Paul, so I do not butcher your name anymore, you know, should you be listening for reasons unclear. One, let's be friends, please. I think you are awesome. And two, thank you for letting me use your given name. And I'm sorry if you're mad about it. <laughs> okay. So Paul, who had, in fact, found a skeleton covered in jewels hanging out in an abandoned church in the woods in Germany, as he was telling the Smithsonian article, or the author writing the Smithsonian article, he wrote this 
first one off as sort of a one of kind of weird thing because religions are weird reliquaries are weird but there was a gilded skeleton holding a cup covered in jewels in a dilapidated church in the middle of the woods in germany like you do yeah that's a thing it is Yes. And it turns out that it wasn't just a curiosity. He was in Germany at the time researching another book called The Empire of Death. And for that book, he was exploring church ossuaries and charnel houses. But he just kept finding more bejeweled and gilded skeletons as he was finding the other things that he expected to find. And some were on display, some were hidden away in crypts. But who were they? And why were there all of these bedazzled skeletons hanging out in churches largely in Germany? It wasn't even near the decade of disco. These are some flashy flashy corpses. They're pretty great. Right. The why of why they existed in those churches in the first place takes us on an interesting journey. When those skeletal remains that I mentioned earlier were unearthed in Rome in 1578, and when the people who unearthed it decided that it was likely full of persecuted Christians, the Catholic Church, still smarting from the Reformation, saw an opportunity. Because during the Reformation, many of the church's relics had been destroyed or removed by looters and vandals, never to be seen again, probably existing in curiosity shops or on someone's mantle someplace, like these things tend to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finding a cache of skeletons from early Christian martyrs was like finding a glimmer of hope for the Catholic Church at that time. Because if they were martyrs, the Church reasoned, then the bodies were holy and could be used to restore both the relic shelves and cubbies and the morale of the parishioners in their newly reverted back parishes. And because of that, Catholic churches, especially in Germany, lined up to get skeletons like they were lining up to get new iPhones. (laughs) And I'm not even kidding. This was a big, big deal. They didn't want just one. They wanted, like, ten. Like, skeletons. skeletons. Yeah. Well, I agree, but, like... Ten may be excessive. It seems like a bit much, but, you know, would I say no to ten skeletons? True, true. No. No, I wouldn't. Who are we to judge? Yes. So all of these churches that were trying to recover from, I guess, the collective trauma 
of the Reformation, although I'm not sure if it was traumatic or more of just a like slingshot back and forth sort of thing. I, I don't know because I assume that much like in pagan populations, local populations probably tended to just carry on yeah. as they had been, although I don't know. Um, there were there were legal reasons that they wouldn't have, but um, who pays attention to small German villages? <laughs> Only the Brothers Grimm and things that are haunted. And look how that turned out. <laughs> Not well. Yep. So, because they all wanted at least one, and they were restoring the dignity and the finery to their churches, they also wanted to make them pretty. And in a term that will shock exactly no one, wealthy families wanted them for their own private chapels as well. And then, yeah, I know, I, 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 for one, am just blown over, (laughs) or bowled over, not blown over. Mixing metaphors. Anyway. So organizations and guilds of craft people and fraternal orders and clubs, like I want to think the Hellfire Club, but I'm, that is kind of the opposite of what was happening here. And also wrong location. But they also would adopt a martyr. (laughs) Who would then become their own patron of, you know, whatever the fuck they made. Or whatever they did. So, like, for example, St. Catherine is the patron saint of lace makers. And so if... But if I were adopting a martyr, one of these catacomb saints, often it would be given a name of an actual saint, like, that it would represent, and also the locals might give it very specific folk connotations. So it it was really interesting and strange time to be in the church, I would think. Saints are always kind of a weird thing to begin with for me. Like I don't Yeah. I was I was raised Catholic and I don't get it. Um and then there's my my Catholic BFF's mom used to pray to Padre Pio and to this day I just know he was an Italian saint that had stigmata. I don't know why she prayed to him. I don't know what she was asking Padre Pio for, but, uh, yeah. Well, you should probably look up what he's the patron saint of, because it might be something really, um, interesting. I, now I'm going to have to do that. Well, here, let let us <laughs> jump down that rabbit hole. You said Padre Pio, right? Padre Pio, yep. And they had the, they had the holy water things all over the house. Um, oh, here we go. Why do you pray? Ooh, he's a, a mystic. Oh, that's kind of fun. Um, I found the St. Padre Pio powerful healing prayer. He was <coughs> both... Ooh, excuse me. Beautified? 
which is apparently a thing, and then canonized in 2002. It's feast what? day is September 23rd. Uh, Indeed. I still don't know what it is that he... Oh. Uh, civil defense volunteers and adolescents. That. <laughs> so basically Which we is kind of children. hilarious. Yeah. Um, so wait, is Padre Pio then the, um, card that most, that cops carry? Catholic cops carry in their Oh, hats? they might. Uh, now I need to know that. I opened a whole rabbit hole. Sorry on that. <laughs> well, now I need to know. Yeah, so... Now that's St. Michael. Huh. I think. Yeah, that is. I guess you gotta have an archangel. In there, I, see, there's a lot. There's like a flow chart in there somewhere, I'm sure. But I, so yay, your own personal All right, I, is eight. Uh, th there we go. Now, where was I before <laughs> I decided I needed to know about Padre Pio? Okay, so like I said, people adopted a martyr, like you do, yep. and skeletons from. That particular Roman catacomb were really big business for the Catholic Church. And if a small church happened to want one, they needed to have, you know, connections with the Vatican. Well, I don't know if it was actually called the Vatican at that point, but... They needed to know somebody who knew somebody who knew the Pope. Always about the business and corruption. Yeah, well... You know, like a good religion. <laughs> that is, and that was the problem that the Reformation was so mad about. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's how we got Quakers and all manner of other Lutherans, obviously. And, um... Okay, I'm not going to go down that mental rabbit hole either. Averting rabbit hole. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Bob and weave. Bob and weave. Right. So, it, enough so's. In all, thousands of relics were sent out by the Vatican during the time when these churches were reestablishing themselves in Roman Catholic tradition. And not all of them were complete skeletons, but according to Paul, at least 2,000 complete articulated skeletons ended up in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, which is where the majority of all of the remains from those catacombs ended up. Okay. And if you were wondering, how to tell if your skeleton is a martyr? I got a list. Okay. If there was an M engraved next to the skeleton, they decided that that denoted martyr. Not the name Marcus, which was the most common name of the time <laughs> period. I... I read someplace in my research, but martyr, 
M. Okay. okay. Now, if there's a perfume vial nearby, as was customary in Roman burials of this time period, they decided that it wasn't perfume. It obviously was the saint's blood. Okay. Okay. And perfume at this time was really, was used in a similar fashion to how modern people, like, bring flowers to a funeral. Cover up I assume that it was because (laughs) dead people smell. Mm Mm-hmm. And... That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) Exactly. So, not perfume, definitely blood. Okay. Fine. And... If that isn't present for some reason, you could always look to see if the bones glowed gold or smelled kind of sweet. If they did, you got yourself a martyr. And then that was an extra bonus of martyrdom was, you know, right? Golden bones. (laughs) Well, when all else failed, if you were still confused, you could bring in an aura reading psychic. And if they saw the particular saintly aura that they were looking for, there you go. You've got a martyr. And I have to say that I did not know that aura reading psychics were part of the deal in the late 1500s yeah that's it's pretty surprising so maybe that is a more modern thing but it was in the list of i well it was in the list of ways that they picked martyrs from non-martyrs within these catacombs so I don't know. Very interesting. Yeah. Oops. Um, so who made them? Yeah. You may be asking yourself that now. Totally. At the time, nuns themselves, like, just sort of broadly, were often very skilled makers of cloth, and specifically spun well it says the article said that they spun fine gauze that is not how gauze is made but i would imagine looking at the extremely extremely fine threads they spun flax a flax variety that does not exist now uh, into very, very, very fine thread and then wove with that because these are definitely woven pieces. But that is just me being cranky and pedantic. Well, but it's important to be accurate. Well, this is a podcast about making things that are weird. Yeah. So, yeah. It's our right. job. It is our job. And so this fine gauze, and I realize that this is probably not the thing. 
I don't know that anybody else who's looking intently at these skeletons is looking at the gauze. But I found it to be the coolest part because, I mean, aside from, you know, jewels being glued on a skeleton. Uh, well, they aren't glued, but anyway. It's, you can see the hand craftsmanship in that gauze. It's so fine, and you can, it's translucent, but also it was a protective piece that covered the bones and kept dust and decay from happening, in theory, and like kept them safe, but it also provided basically netting on which the jewels and filigree wire and all of the things that would adorn the skeletons um, to be affixed. Ah, okay. And so it was significantly more important than I knew, and I also hadn't really noticed that when I was first looking. But a lot of these, a lot of the skeletons that remain have each of their individual bones wrapped very thoroughly in this very fine gauze. So it almost looks like they were trying to make them look like they had skin. Oh, wow. But I don't think that was the intent. I think the intent was protection and being able to decorate them. But a lot of times the fingers look very, very human. I mean, they are human, but they look very real because they're so full. Oh, okay. Which is an interesting That is. Thing to me. Also, that makes more sense because I was wondering how they would get the jewels to stay on the skeleton. Yeah, and I'm going to describe at least a little of uh, a few of these skeletons. And I will put some photos on our Instagram and in the show notes because you really need to see them. They, they the get, cover of that book. It's mind-blowing. And the, the book, Heavenly Bodies, Cult Treasures and Spectacular Saints from the Catacombs, is just a beautiful pictorial book. And I could not recommend it more because Paul is an amazing photographer, which is one of the reasons I want to be friends with him. <laughs> When uh, the local churches received these skeletons, I don't think they were necessarily pre-articulated. I think they may have either been in parts or a box of bones. I am not entirely sure. Here's your Build-A-Martyr kit. <laughs> oh, exactly. But... 
since the Vatican said that these skeletons were relics and the Vatican was the final word on that, um, these bundles of bones needed to be made presentable for the public if they were to be able to fill the role of the lost uh, relics of saints that had been either taken or destroyed. So, skilled nuns, like I said earlier, and a handful of monks, probably, spent up to three years preparing and adorning each skeleton before it was presented to the congregation. And convents would have their own recognizable style for adorning the bones. And the bones were... When we say jewel-covered skeletons, I mean straight up jewel-encrusted skeletons. Like, this is... It's exactly as intensely bizarre and also beautiful as you would be thinking. And so they all had... And these weren't costume pieces. They had real gemstones, fine fabrics that were generally donated by local nobility. And also uh, that local nobility would also often provide for the gemstones and the gold wire that they would use to essentially make lace. And I'm actually just looking at bobbin lace in one of them. That's fun. So these were all very, very high quality goods. And the nuns and few monks who were responsible were outstandingly skilled craftspeople but they were doing it in a vacuum. So they were not connected to artists and craftspeople that also existed during that time. And so this is a very interestingly isolated skill set that isn't taking from the other things that were going on within the artistic world at the time because they they were nuns. They right. were not going out and Cohorting going to artists. art school yeah. um, or whatever. Okay, so I'm going to just describe one of these. Just the time per- it must have taken to make the gauze, to weave that gauze with that fine of thread. Oh, and it is it is just so cool. Um, so right now I am looking at an example of one of the skeletons, and I'm trying to find. Uh, oh, this is the one I think I've seen actually. Um, Saint Mundita, uh, Mundisha, Mund- yeah, Saint Mundisha in the Church of St. Peter in Munich. And 
she is wearing like this gold filigree with leaf diadem and is holding a glass they all seem or at least all of them that i've seen seem to be holding up a glass toasting and so i feel like i mean i guess their blood was supposed to be in there i don't know is it their blood or was it supposed to be the blood of christ no their blood their blood yeah and so she she has glass eyes inset within the skull but the rest of it is just gauze covered and then there is um, point lace around her collar there is lots of gold cording that is clearly actually metallic and like basically what you would think of if you were thinking of like a richly embroidered costume of the nobility during that time period. Okay. And so like the 1700s, I think. Um, wait, that is not correct. Hellblast Dam. 1600s. Um, and each like individual rib might have gold wrapped around it, like gold filament wrapped around it that was braided or woven into different shapes. There are just gigantic gemstones, like so big you would think they had to be fake, except they definitely are not wow. and just the there's so much silk and so much fine lace work and it's it's just fascinating and pretty much all of them are individual looking some of them have like breastplates and are dressed up as roman warriors except Roman warriors wearing silk brocade. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's a whole thing. But because these individual skeletons were being prepared by these extremely skilled nuns, you can, or according to Paul in his research, and I can see this throughout the photos in the book, there, if you are a maker of things, you will start to recognize sort of the hallmarks of different either individuals or groups of nuns yeah. who made different skeletons. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, it's not surprising at all that nobility would donate all of these things because... You know, you get to put your name Breaking on it. Rights, yep. But sometimes nuns themselves would put their own rings on the skeletons as part of a personal thing. 
And now I'm not sure if this is... I'm not sure if during this time period nuns wore wedding rings. I know that they did in many places until like the 1960s and also had wedding dresses Mm because they got married to Christ. It was a whole thing. (laughs) And so I'm not sure if that was still happening, but I do know that at the time period it was not rare for daughters of nobility, especially second daughters, to go into religious life because their dowries would be too expensive. And so often one would be set up to make an advantageous marriage and then any additional daughters might be sent to a monastery. So it's entirely possible that these were noble women and that they had items of value. Right. And if you're working with, so even if you're just working on it from an artist standpoint on any project for mm-hmm. three years, it's intensely personal. Yeah. Now, if that project is then an actual being like that. Yeah. And, and you then, very much believe right. that this is a holy item. Right. I can. Because yeah. they're, the sincerity is, I think, what makes all of this so important. There's a level of that, intimacy there that is... Yeah. Is and these people unique. truly believed mm-hmm. that these were holy items, it, and as did the congregations. This wasn't just a show of wealth. It was very much a dearly held belief. Yeah, I can... I can... It makes sense that they would include their own personal items as well yeah and i think that's really lovely and really interesting absolutely yeah especially i i assume that there was no no one was making them i assume that they were doing it out of personal sacrifice which i think i think is a lovely idea and these are gorgeous pieces of art so once that hmm? they I wish that they had a moment where they realized that they were beautiful pieces of art. Maybe I, they did. Like, I hope. I hope that there was a moment in there where they could step back I can't and be like... imagine that the very specific point of making something so beautiful to glorify the God that you also think is so beautiful and so important... I would have to think that I imagine they shied away from taking pride in their work because that is a, right. you know, that's a sin. It is. <laughs> but I would imagine that there was celebration in creating beauty for the church. I don't know. I mean, not I being one of them. And just went, I'm an artist. You know what I mean? That there's more than just. I hope they knew they were skilled. Yeah. And uncommonly skilled. Yes. But once the skeletons were in place in their congregations, they were 
often believed to protect members of the congregation from harm, and they were often also given credit for any good or miraculous happenings that came to pass after their arrival. So there's a big crossover between, like, the occult Mm -hmm. and um, mystics, spirituality and the just normal pomp and circumstance of Roman Catholic celebrating of mass. And I I am unsurprised because a lot of these were relatively small churches in small towns in Germany and Austria and Switzerland. And there's a lot of folklore there. Mm -hmm. And there were also apparently sometimes even miracle books in churches that recorded the good deeds that had been caused by (laughs) the catacomb saints. And... I oh I just I love that like somebody was like gonna need a ledger <laughs> the miracles are a flowing again let's get this one in the book <laughs> yeah and so there are just so many attributions of good things and mildly miraculous things that people would attribute to their saints. And one was even credited for saving a town from a fire that was encroaching upon, like, its city center marketplace. Because right before that happened and would have basically taken out the entire city, a huge amount of wind came from the other direction and blew it away. And they attributed this to their saint. Which, all right, I attribute things to much weirder stuff. Right. So, a bejeweled skeleton, I I can work with that. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in the 18th century, many of these skeletons were removed because Austria's Emperor Joseph II who was looking oh. to banish Joseph's superstition. A dick. I talk about him too a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he is a dick. Um he was looking to banish superstition because witches. Ugh. Um and he required all relics to have defined and definite provenance which was a problem because these skeletons we know from whence they came and generally speaking from when they came Mm -hmm. but nobody knows who they were Mm -hmm. and so you can only make assumptions because of time and place and burial that they were christian martyrs And, alas, the expected removing, plundering of jewels and gold and the locking away 
ensued. And this traumatized the locals, whose belief in the skeletons and the the saintly overwatching that they took very seriously, their faith didn't waver. Yeah. And you were just taking away, once again, the thing that was the visual representation of their faith. And uh, didn't we already do that with the Reformation? Right. Just saying. But anyway. Luckily, some of the skeletons were saved from the 18th century nonsense and are still on display and some of them on display in situ which is very cool that is 10 of them can be seen in the Waldsassen basilica which holds the largest remaining collection that is as far as i understand in place in situ was not taken down um and you can also like i mentioned earlier see one at saint peter's church in munich which i believe i have seen because it looks very familiar and i was there a lot and many of them do still exist but aren't on display and are kind of tracked down by way of rumor. And even churches themselves don't know that they're there sometimes. So I guess one that Paul found was hanging out in a box in a church for 200 years (laughs) and nobody noticed. This happens a lot in old churches, and I kind of love that they're just like, well, that box has been there since three generations ago. I don't want to know what's in there. (laughs) But, yeah, so whatever. And he also found one in a parking garage storage unit in Switzerland. Wow. Yeah. I want to know the story of that one. (laughs) Yeah, And so while he was researching this book, he tracked down a lot of them, and a lot of them weren't necessarily destroyed or completely destroyed. They were like, it's sort of like the uh, genius of evil statue of uh, Lucifer, Mm -hmm. which is a fucking beautiful, beautiful statue that is hidden because it's so beautiful. Mm. Um, This is sort of one of those situations, except it isn't because the statue of Lucifer is so hot. It is (laughs) because bejeweled skeletons fell out of favor. But because it would have been a pain in the butt to get rid of these things, and also because they were worth money, like they had gold and jewels literally attached to them it seems like churches often you know put them away in their well their catacombs but that is not on the same scale as catacombs that we are thinking of but 
so so they still exist and almost all of them are apparently still contained in their original 400 year old glass tombs wow like just take a moment for that what and you can't take them out you can barely clean the glass and some of it has warped with time and so you can't take pictures of some of it because in order to get a clear shot you would need to remove it from its original case and you would probably destroy it probably the only reason it still even exists at all yeah, I, I feel like it would just turn to dust. Yeah. But I just, I think that that is fascinating. I agree. Yeah. Like, what? It, I, mm. I've seen a lot of relics and a lot of reliquaries, and I've even been to an island in the Italian Alps with a basement full of skeletons. <laughs> <clears throat> because I made my in-laws go to there when we were in the Italian Alps. It's the only thing I wanted to do on the trip. So, think about it. If you... Now, I would a thousand percent have made the world's shittiest nun. But, if you were trying to fuck with something I spent three years lovingly working on, like, I'd have hid that shit too. I'd I'd have... gone to whatever lengths I could have to preserve it and and make sure that it, it carried on. And that's just from, well, from it a was craft a couple. standpoint, not even from a yeah. this is a holy relic standpoint. I mean, none of these people were alive anymore right, when this still, happened. Right, but still, I mean, you, in order to, when the shit went down, you had to, the first steps you took with it were the most important ones. You know what I mean? I agree. So. Yeah. And, yeah, so there are... Not very many in the grand scheme of things left over, but there are also significantly more that still exist than I would have expected. That's amazing. Yes, and you should definitely, definitely, definitely pick up the Heavenly Bodies book by Paul Kudanderis. Our buddy Paul. I think. (laughs) Yes. Because... It is beautiful, profoundly weird, <laughs> and beautiful. Those right. are. Favorite. And my spouse has just come home and is banging around in the background. So yeah. Anyway, that that is that was longer than I had intended it to be. It was I really good. thought that was going to be fast. Yeah, well, I, I interrupted with the whole Padre Pio thing, so I... Well, I, I tried it to has the- never been fast. <laughs> Have I ever been... No. The answer is no. <laughs> anyway, well, they're real cool. I love the fact that I had a completely different topic initially and didn't even remotely look at anything to do with yours because I so was excited to hear the tale behind it. Um, and I think it's wonderful how ours kind of click together. Yes, we do that. <laughs> we, we were pretty good about that. So if you happen to be strolling along in Kutnahora, a 
Czech town about wait 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 wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> it's called what Kutnahora that's what uh, she I listened said. I listened I looked it up and I listened listened and that's how it was pronounced by Czech people so it's a Czech town about an hour fine 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 outside of Prague you may stumble across I have been to there yes you have uh, you may stumble across a quaint little gothic church named Cemetery Church of All Saints. From the outside, it appears to be just a basic church, uh, but it's the ossuary, or ossuary, depending on who you are, uh, below that uh, brings people coming from all over the world. Fascinating. I like a good ossuary. Right? What the heck is an ossuary? You may wonder, because some people are like, uh, you keep using that word. What does it mean? I mean, we did talk about them maybe. in some of our very earliest episodes. We did. But maybe you're new. Uh, I don't know. So an ossuary is a chest, a box, a chamber, even a building made to serve as the final resting place of human skeletal remains. Yes. They're frequently used when burial space is scarce. A body is first buried in a temporary grave. Then after some years, the skeletal remains are removed and placed in the ossuary. If you listened to season one, episode three, What Remains Can Be Seen, you heard us tell tale of Paris catacombs. Well, it's true. The Sedwick Ossuary, otherwise known as the Bone Church, makes the catacombs look hella basic. Really? Oh, yeah. While it's technically the Cemetery Church of All Saints, it's part of the former Sedlick Abbey and Sedlick and will forever be known as the Sedlick Ossuary. Fair enough. So what makes it so special? Um, the I should note here, just as a side thing, which doesn't necessarily make it super special, but adds to it was that the church itself was part of the oldest Cistercian monastery in Bohemia, founded in 1142. But we're oh. only going to take it back to the 1200s when the magic really began. Okay. So 1278, to be exact. Henry, that's it. You know, like Madonna, Prince, just Henry. Uh, All right. The, the abbot of the Cistercian Monastery in Sedlik was sent on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Which was oh, yeah. Jerusalem. Last names weren't common then, nope. actually. Uh, of Jerusalem by King Odeker II of Bohemia. Now, legend has it that our pal Henry returned with uh, a small amount of earth that he removed from... Golgotha and spread it all over the Abbey Cemetery. Some tales say he did like miracles with it and stuff too, but the act of putting it in the cemetery pretty much turned it into the place to be buried if you were Bohemian. Okay. Um, its popularity grew and grew and grew, and then the plague hit around 1318. And that, in and of itself, resulted in an estimated 30,000 new burials. Fucking plague. Fucking plague. 
Uh, I mean, there were like three different plagues. Right. Well, this particular plague was. Yes. None of the plagues are great. Fuck all the plagues. No. That's why they're plagues. Uh, around 1400, a Gothic church was built in the center of the cemetery with a vaulted upper level and then the lower chapel to be used as an ossuary for the mass graves that was unearthed just during the construction of it, as well as to make room for new bodies. Wait, so they found a bunch of bones and decided they were going to decorate with them? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, right. They needed some place to put them. In the not in the ground. Well, but they that's they had to dig up the ground in the cemetery. So this this church was built in the cemetery where people already been buried. So instead of because uh, they're running out of room, so I guess they're just oh, okay. deciding to go you know deeper and. So they went very goth, right? Oh yeah, in their gothic church, they absolutely did. Um, and baroque, but we'll get to that. In well. the spring of 1421, the Hussite troops captured Kutnhora. Uh, they also attacked Sedlik, which was a total dick move. I mean, it's a fucking monastery. They plundered and burnt the cathedral and the monastery and devastated the cemetery Church of All Saints. In addition, the Hussite wars added at least another 10,000 bodies to the count. Now, oh. yeah, like there's, there is no exact number that is known in terms of body count and to the point where the range is between oh 40,000 and 70,000 depending on who you ask and how big was that area it because populations were not right but and that was war not plague it was Okay, so 10,000 was from and the war. 30,000 was from the plague. Also, people were already like trying to get buried there to begin with because it was the only place in the area that had been christened with this holy dirt. Hot damn. Right. Like, it was happening. Um, so, it had it all. Holy dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I'm going to do my Stefan face. I love Stefan. Just... Okay. I've done it. Good times. So, yeah. So, lots, lots and lots of bodies. Uh, and it's funny because they're, so, uh, I included a, I found an English translated pamphlet, the copy of the pamphlet they hand out when you go to it. And then there's the official website. And then there's the Wikipedia. And there's, so, none of these, even the pamphlet that's handed out, the number doesn't match the official website. <laughs> like, it's just, they just throw out a number. Um. So there, it's just a lot. So at the end of the 15th century, there was just like too many fucking bodies. So the bodies were dug up, moved to the chapel, and made into pyramids somewhere around 1511. And what? Pyramids? Poor, yeah. And what poor soul was tasked with this? Well, legend has it that it was a half blind monk who arranged the bones and skulls into the pyramids and allegedly he got his eyesight back when the task was completed huh how about that right uh between 1661 and 1663 the church finally received repairs including rearranging of the bones uh an original gothic star-shaped vault of the upper chapel was replaced at that time um 
And then another major reconstruction and probably, well, one of the bigger ones uh, of the monastery began in the Baroque period in the early 18th century. That reconstruction was entrusted to Jean Belgia Santini. He hmm. rebuilt the Cathedral of the Assumption and the Church of All Saints with the ossuary entirely in Baroque Gothic style. Uh, Santini is oh. also considered to be the author of the basic concepts of skeletal decorations according to the Baroque piety and principles of the Baroque aesthetics. Wait. Yep. There's a book on it? There is. There's a Holy book of, shit. Of, of how you do this thing. There I are... clearly <laughs> need a copy. I'm going to try to hunt it down. Uh, there are liturgical symbols of cups and monstrances in the niches, garlands of bones that are reminiscent of Baroque angelic heads, which is one of the photos that I included. It's really amazing. Baroque angelic heads are terrifying. And the... Who thought that was a good idea? I don't know. Not me. I mean, biblical the, angels look like monsters, so. Oh, totally. Especially when they're the cute little cherub ones, and you're like, mm, I know better. Uh, the Oh, no, but I just mean, like, the biblical descriptions. They right. have, like, 15 arms. Oh, and, yeah, and you couldn't listen to them. Like oh, no. Yeah, no. Anyway. Uh, so, the, uh, oh, they also had pinnacle-shaped candle holders from 1742 that symbolized the eternal light. So we've gone well. from pyramids to some light decorating with skeletons, but we've not gone full weird yet. Oh, no. Huh. No, we have not. So that brings us to 1783, where our buddy, the fuckhead Joseph II. Um, Hell blast, damn. Yeah, abolished the Sedlick Monastery. And then the Schwarzenberg family which sounds very Jewish to me. Um, I mean, they is it Schwarzenberg? Yeah, Schwarzenberg. No, I mean, yeah, could be. Yeah. But, so, but uh, they were from Orlik, and they stepped in and purchased it. Cool. Thanks to their patronage, the Sedlik ossuary was maintained. In 1870, they brought in local woodcarver Frontensick Rint, to cool. renew and extend the Baroque bone decoration as well as make something beautiful from the staggering piles of bone. Wait, he was a... a Woodcover. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, so he was like, wood, bone, same thing. After bleaching and carving the bones, he used them to decorate the holy space. Now, when cool. I say decorate the holy space... Rint made chains of skulls to stretch across entranceways. Chalices and crosses were constructed from hips and femurs. There is even a detailed Schwarzenberg family crest thanking the aristocratic family that funded the initiative, adorning a wall. It is huge. Just Oh, I'm huge. looking at it right now, and... I am not allowed to become interested in heraldry. <laughs> so I cannot tell. Although I think there's a baton sinister. There, there is. In the corner of it, there's a 
crow pecking at a skull that's supposed to like symbolize eventually bleeding the Hussites, I think. Um, uh, I don't know. There is a ton, ton of symbolism all over the place. I only know one thing from heraldry, and it is baton sinisters denoting bastard children recognized. Fun. That's a good thing. Yeah. To know. It is fun, but holy crap. Now, the true showstopper, though, mm-hmm. is the Asuari's tremendous chandelier that incorporates <laughs> every single bone in the human body <laughs> repeatedly. It is <gasps> huge. Even Rin's own signature located at the bottom of the large staircase is made of bones well like i mean if you're all in oh my goodness i am looking at the chandelier right it is like wow if you had the most talented carpenter create a log cabin and everything in it had to be made out of wood only it was bone. <laughs> this is the most metal thing I have ever seen. Right. Do you see why I'm like, it makes the catacombs in Paris look basic. <laughs> yeah. It, the catacombs are very chill. And like some of those, there's the garland of skulls against that dark woodwork. <laughs> like, I just fucking love it. The garland of skulls and like sort of the, it looks like leg bone wind chimes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That, uh, or are maybe curtains? <laughs> seriously. Seriously. Now, like, wow. <laughs> the pamphlet that they hand out to visitors reads, Memento Mori, Remember the Death. Associated with the Christian hope of the resurrection remains a valid message for each visitor of this unique place and helps us to understand the symbolism of the place and its decoration. It is not a celebration of death, but symbolizes the equality of people in front of the throne of God. I'm not really getting that, but okay. No, I get death. Same, same. The crucified Christ Calvary on the high altar with the east window backlit is an expression of the hope. (laughs) The wooden carved crowns at the tops of the bone pyramids represent Jesus Christ's triumph. Currently, the Sedlik Cemetery and the Church of All Saints with the ossuary are associated with the preparation of extensive restoration work involving many branches. Uh, And, indeed, uh, even though they had a specialist that would come in and regularly clean the bones individually with a toothbrush, starting in 2019... A giant restoration project started. It was expected to last two years, but pandemic. The project oh. is indeed aimed at at preserving the bones and also aims to restore and strengthen the church building itself that houses them and draws half a million visitors every year. The bones will be cleansed of surface dirt and then soaked in lime solution. This is a natural method of preservation, which was also used during the creation of these pyramids, said conservation expert Thomas Crawl. To make sure the structures are rebuilt in the original format, 
the restoration team has hired a firm, Nas Story, to produce computer modules and models of the Bowen Pyramids using photos and video mapping. Okay. And that is the story of the Sedlik Ossuary that is just amazing. Wow. I wonder how much it costs to restore that. I don't know. Because if you look at the photos, and they're all fairly, I mean, recent in like the last 20 years-ish. Yeah. They look remarkably well kept to begin with. Oh, I think so too. I think it's the building itself that is probably more of the concern. It's even though That's a lot of bones. It's a lot of bones. Even bone though bones are relatively light. Not this many bones. bones. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of bones. Yeah. And, you know, half a million people, it's not that big of a place. So having half a million people tromp through there a year, I mean, that's a significant amount of traffic um, and exposure because it is a lot. There's nothing actually protecting them, which is all the more reason why it is pretty amazing that they do look so well kept. um, Well, they're, they're indoors. They are indoors, but still, I mean, people are germy and weird. I, people are germy and weird, but you don't generally have bone-eating germs. True. Generally. Um, but, I mean, certainly... I wonder if they have bats. Ooh. To uh, eat pests. Anyway, I just... Just considering how much it must cost to restore when you have to take the bones down... Like, that blows my mind, because when I was looking into the catacomb saints, apparently a church had asked a restoration specialist how much it would cost to restore their catacomb saint, Mm -hmm. and the amount was just mind-blowing. Yeah. Like, not like impossibly expensive yeah i can imagine um and it's remained open during the entire restoration which makes sense that you would have to do it in bits and pieces um well yeah and you need that money right to pay for the restoration presumably but wow that is that is an intense amount of bones and it is. And I even think it's a lot of bones. <laughs> and I'm really into bones. And it's um it's not entirely clear to me how um you go underground and like there's a tunnel lined with skulls. Um but it's not entirely clear to me. I think the church itself is is obviously adorned with them as well. Like the whole building is just um, yeah, it looks like all of the church is, and then there, the pyramids are underneath. Is yeah. that? It's, yeah. It wasn't... It, I, I There's a lot going on there. There is. There's a lot to keep track of. I have to say, the skull garland, that's what gets me. Yeah. 
yep. the skull garland. Like, if you've got that many skulls, why not make a skull garland? Right. I... Huh. That is an intense quantity of bones. It is indeed. It is indeed. I... I don't think I will have to look up. I I didn't think to look to see if they have any kind of directory of names of people that are associated with those. Um, oh, I bet not because of the time period and how right. many people. And also it was destroyed, so like the parish register right. would I have probably been know. destroyed. What went through their heads that were like, hey... Do you know what would make our church even cooler? Let's get this wood carver and see what he can do with those bones. Like, I... I have to assume, just looking at the sheer quantity, that they must have just unearthed so many remains that they had to do something with them. And it was either stack them in the basement or stack them artfully in the basement because just the amount of skulls mm -hmm. alone right indicates to me the sheer volume of human remains right. that must be in there and i'm thinking about prague specifically and some of the older cemeteries in Prague, they seem very full. There's, there's an elevation <laughs> to them, and there's some headstones that are at some pretty interesting angles <laughs> because so yeah, uh, there's a lot going on there. And yeah... So, I I would imagine that not that in a move not dissimilar to how the Paris catacombs ended up filled with skulls. Yeah. Uh, but here's the where thing. else would they put them? I I'm just trying to figure out what they did with the influx of thirty thousand from the plague, because it's not like they got thirty thousand skeletons. Well, I, I mean, those bodies were very contagious. I'm going to guess, and this is just a guess based on, it. I have very recently done a very deep dive into the plague. Um, I'm going to guess that the reason that all of these bones are up here is because all of the plague bodies are down underneath. I assume that they had to dig them all up to make plague pits. That is plague pits my best sense. guess. The only thing that, other thing I was thinking was like a mass burning where like a, you know like a bonfire wouldn't would burn off the the flesh and the skin but would not be hot enough to disintegrate the bone. I I don't know. Um, I do know that 
because the bodies were infectious that getting them in the ground as quickly as possible, even though germs were simply not a thing that people knew about and they did not know about rats and marmots and Mm -hmm. all of the things that carried plague. Um, They knew that they needed to get rid of the bodies because the bodies made people sick. Mm. So, I don't know. I'm... I guess if you've got a very specific and limited amount of consecrated ground. Oh, you know what? Actually, one of the answers might be just the difference between U.S. burials and European burials, where generally speaking, you are renting a space, and at some point, someone else takes your place like when you are bones that air that area is recycled yeah interesting. i mean a lot that's of bones. just a lot of bones i assume if there were charnel houses that would also be a way i don't know that's a lot it must have been well it also must have been a significant amount of land if they had a monastery if they had an abbey as well as you know the cemetery and the church and so i'm thinking it was a it must be a substantial plot of land that began this I would endeavor. think so. I guess, did you say when the, when the person started building with the bones? So, okay, so the, yeah, the, so there's been several phases of when they were bu- like built with. Initially, it was just stacked in pyramids. Um, but those started as early as, I want to say the 15, when was our, our buddy the... All right, so that would have been long is, enough for the, plague yeah, bodies that's true. That's, you're to talking. be skeletal. Yeah, because it's almost, I mean, it's a good 90 years after the war, too. So, at that point, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure how long, I, I know that there is some concern about opening plague pits even now yeah but i am not sure if that is warranted concern or not i don't know enough about it but hot damn that is a lot of bones i feel like we need to it's like a liberace add it to our list made out of bone stuff Chandeliers and chimes and guns. It is like <laughs> the most supervillain of lairs. Yes. It is. And there was part of a, okay, there's part of a good D&D movie that was shot there. Oh, also, before I forget, there is an amazing black and white short from 1970 that is linked in the show notes. It's like a 10-minute video uh, that was done in the ossuary and there is uh (laughs) there's like a shot there's snails there's a lot of snails in it for some reason there's this wonderful shot of before maybe they ate the bodies possibly before they even get to like into it there's like a skull on the outside and there's like a little snail just chilling one of the eye sockets it's amazing check out the videos 
that sounds extremely 1970s. Oh, it is. It is so 1970s in all of the best ways. Uh, I so, feel delighted. Uh, yeah. I haven't even seen it, and I feel delighted. It is. Uh, it's linked for your your viewing pleasure. <sighs> oh no! Oh, I no. have I have the yawns. Maybe we should uh, go <laughs> record <death>. Patreon <laughs> and that, uh, sign off a, of this one. But. Mm. Speaking of all of this death, yeah, it is time for the weekly oh. worst way to die. I forgot about the weekly worst way to die. Yeah. I also don't remember what my weekly worst way to die even is. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, oh. Uh, now I remember. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. All right. So what is your weekly worst way to die? Mine is crushed by that giant chandelier well that would be a heck of a way to go though yeah i mean it'd be epic but it would suck oh yeah um mine is a brain tumor that is itself an even tinier brain (laughs) and i'm gonna tell the patrons all about that thing that is an actual thing so yeah uh come listen to the patreon yeah it's it's i'm excited excited. there's gonna be be a a lot of questionable life choices indeed speaking of questionable life choices Uh uh-huh do you want to be spooky internet friends obviously (laughs) we are bones and bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Tiki Tok, all over the all over the webs. Or you can just go to bonesandbombins.com and find all of our stuff from there. It's true. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It pleases the internet gremlins, and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us <laughs> and what I think we should do, even though I'm not entirely sure we know this answer, I think we should all play like that jelly bean guessing game of how many are in the container, but yes. with skulls in the ossuary. And so, leave it as a comment. That's what I'm saying. Yes. I am all about that because I want morbid souls. Or maybe somebody knows and they can tell us. Yes. Do it. Yes. Do it now. And on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. (laughs) Not even a gallop. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce.
Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange